Gimlet. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they have learned from both. And today, well, let's go back in time to 2004. Remember then? George Bush was reelected as president of the United States. The TV show Lost hit the air. The word podcast was used for the first time. And one of today's most influential and controversial companies was launched out of a college dorm room. You were employee number 29 at Facebook, was that right? Yeah, I believe so. CNN uncovered that. Um, I wasn't actually sure what the number was, but uh, that appears to be it. So you, were, you, were, you worked at Facebook when Facebook was much smaller than Gimlet is today, um, you st- <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy to yeah, think about. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the time I visited you at Gimlet, I was struck by how many people were there. <laughs> this is Dave Morin. He's not a household name. I only know him because, well, I met him at a leadership conference. I go to those now, apparently. Anyway, I was fascinated by him there. Sort of all of us who were there were, because his story is sort of the embodiment of a story we've all been living through for the past two decades. The story of our intense early love and fascination with social media that has now morphed into dread and disillusionment. Since Dave first joined Facebook as employee number 29, the company has, of course, grown much bigger than Gimlet, much bigger than almost any other company in the world, bigger than many countries' economies. It's gone from a simple, unassuming idea to something much bigger, more powerful, and harder to comprehend. Cyberbullying is becoming more prevalent. There's been a causal connection established between time spent on social media and depression and loneliness. A new study suggests Facebook's ad delivery algorithm may discriminate based on gender and race. Somebody found in Mark Zuckerberg revealed that he is cooperating with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into alleged tampering of the 2016 election. The unfolding scandal with a political data firm, Cambridge Analytica. Dave has been front and center to our evolving relationship with the internet and social media. And as one of the architects of the whole thing, he has a unique perspective. At this leadership conference, I only had a chance to talk to him briefly about it. So I sat down with him to hear the full story. Dave grew up conceptually as far from the corridors of Silicon Valley power as you can get in small town Montana. He was an eccentric, brainy kid, didn't really fit in, but he loved technology. In elementary school, his grandfather bought one of those early Macs, and Dave would spend hours on it every day, building programs, just messing around. Ultimately, once the internet came around, um, I just fell absolutely in love with the internet um, and community on the internet and being able to connect with people from anywhere in the world and, um, you know, have conversations and exchange things. I remember uh, for a hot minute, there was a really amazing online, uh, I don't know if you could call it a community called Hotline, mm-hmm. which was Macintosh only. Uh-huh. And there, there was sort of a cult following around the Mac. And so Hotline was like the, uh, the place all the Mac people hung out. And um, I remember that was a really interesting and neat place to hang out, particularly because it had different servers in different locations around the world. So anytime you were plugged into one of them, it was like you were hanging out in Hawaii or New York or whatever. And all the people you would run into there were were from that local area. And what captured you about that, do you think? I mean, I think it was a lot that I was from this very rural town and that um, 
you know, the, the, the world felt very far away in Montana. Um, Montana is a, a, a rural place. It's cold. There's not a lot of people. And um, I think it's, it's easy to feel alone in Montana. Um, and so I think there was something about the internet that made it feel like it was a portal to um, places far away and experiences that you otherwise just couldn't see. And I think, you know, when you're a, uh, a kid that's relatively geeky <laughs> and into things like computers, particularly back then, it made you an outsider. And, uh, you know, uh, Montana is a place where football and basketball and, you know, uh, hunting and sort of your sort of mainstream type sports are on the cover of the newspaper, right? People aren't uh -huh. talking about computers and um, technology, at least not back then. And so I think I, I felt relatively alone and uh, the internet certainly did reduce that. You felt like there was other people like you that you were bumping into in these, in these rooms. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no question. Yeah, and I think that's, a, I think that's arguably the best of the internet. The internet had opened Dave's eyes to the world outside Montana. So unlike most of the kids in his high school, he left there after graduating. And he went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. His reputation as an internet geek followed him. People started calling my dorm room, asking me to build websites for them in 1999, at kind of the beginning of the internet.com boom. And that was back, you could get a lot of money for that back then, right? Yeah, which was a strange thing because, you know, I had a weird thing happen you know, my parents actually got divorced when I was, um, I think, around eight years old. It was when I was in elementary school. And um, my, uh, my mom and I and my sister ended up on welfare um, around that time. And so I had to work a lot of jobs and things through high school. And, um, uh, and then when I got to college, my grandfather had actually promised to help me pay my way through college. And... Um, he had a heart attack my freshman year and um, for a bunch of sort of family politics reasons, I lost the funding that I had to go to Boulder, which was actually a pretty expensive school to choose to go to for someone from Montana. Most people from Montana don't leave Montana. They go to the state schools. And so about halfway through my freshman year, I lost the funding. <laughs> and... Um, when I started getting phone calls in my dorm room for people wanted me to build a website for $1,000, which was something that I could do, you know, in two days over the weekend, um, it was pretty striking. Yeah. You know, the notion that I was going to figure out how to pay for my, my college tuition, which I think at the time was something like $30,000 or $40,000, was pretty crazy. Right. It was a pretty early lesson, I think, in the freedom that entrepreneurship brings. And I guess it also is like this thing that sort of like, look at this, this thing that I was sort of an outsider for, this interest of mine that felt so peculiar growing up in Montana is now paying off. Yeah, it was strange. You know, in college, <laughs> I ended up with this, I'll probably regret saying this on tape, but um, <laughs> I had this uh, nickname. My friends called me Dave.com. Um <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of, to your point, a, a strange thing when, uh, you know, I, I felt like an outsider, like a, a geek, a nerd, you know, a guy that played with computers. 
in uh, middle school and high school. And then in college, you know, 1999, Napster, the internet, these, these things were starting to happen and people were paying attention and suddenly it all felt like magic. And so people that could do things with it felt like magicians to people or something. And so it was like a, it was a nickname with a lot of reverence because people would ask me to, you know, create things for them and they, they kind of would always be amazed by it. And when Dave.com graduated from college, he took the obvious next step for a budding internet entrepreneur. He moved to San Francisco. Had you ever seen it before? No. I, I mean, I remember thinking when I first drove over the hill um, from the South Bay into San Francisco, how, how scary it was. I'd never seen a city this size. Um, I, I remember being incredibly overwhelmed and, uh, and freaked out by how big it was. Um, uh. And, uh, you know, <laughs> this kind of feeling of what am I, <laughs> what, what have I gotten myself into? What did I do? Um, how am I going to, how am I going to handle this place? But of course, San Francisco at that time was exactly the kind of place that somebody like Dave.com was going to handle just fine. He very quickly landed a position at Apple, the company he'd worshipped from the very first time he turned on a Macintosh computer in elementary school. Here's a small town Montana guy. I felt like I achieved the absolute dream that I could have ever possibly imagined. I was working at Apple, you know, I was yeah. getting to interact with like Steve Jobs and all these people who, you know, today you say these, these names and it's like, oh my God. But, you know, remember in 2003, we had less than 5% market share. Everybody thought that it was game over for Apple. Right. Famously, you know, Michael Dell was sending emails to Steve saying, you should just shut it down. Like, what are you doing? Right. The iPod's not selling. You know, it wasn't this, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, even remotely. But at the same time, I felt like I was home, you know, like I was working the place that I, that was like my people. Mm -hmm. At the time, I remember like never wanting to leave. And a young guy like Dave was arriving at the perfect time in Apple's life because the company had cooked up a new plan to try to boost sales, corner the college student market. Dave was tasked with selling Apple products to college kids. He had campus reps scattered across the country, but no way to reach students directly. That all changed one day. One day, the Harvard rep called me and said, hey, you need to check out this thing called the Facebook. It's growing really fast. And I was able to log in. And um, here was a system where instantly you could connect with anybody on your campus. And I, I felt that that was a just dramatic um, it was almost a visceral reaction. And so almost the next day, I walked straight into the VP's office that I was working for. And I just said, I'm finding these Facebook guys. I'm getting on a plane. Were you thinking like, I, I quit, I'm going to go work for these guys? Or you were going to find them for Apple? What were you thinking? What did you mean find? I wasn't that sophisticated. I mean, I, I would like to claim that I was back then. Um, uh -huh. You know, I, I remember this like distinct conversation that I had with my VP at the time where he asked me, should we buy it? And I, I didn't even know what that meant, <laughs> you know, at the time. I was 23, you know, uh, 24 maybe. And so I, I went to the East Coast, went to Harvard. At that meeting at Harvard, Dave met Mark Zuckerberg and Dustin Moskowitz, two of Facebook's founders. And Dave's idea was that Facebook could help Apple sell computers to college students. 
Mark and Dustin agreed. And they thought that Dave could do that using this new feature at Facebook called a Facebook group. One of the first groups, um, if not group ID number one um, in the Facebook system was the Apple group. And it, it went from zero to half a million users uh, inside of this group within one year, which was striking because the largest database that we had at Apple at the time was 50,000 students. And mm-hmm. it had taken, I think, a million dollars or something like that to right. assemble that database. And so I think it was, you know, on a couple hundred thousand dollars, we were able to put together this 500,000 person group uh, on Facebook. Right. I remember Steve asking, what is this voodoo magic that you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you came back and you were like, boss, you remember how we had 50,000 people? I got 500,000 for half the price. Yeah, it was it was so striking. I mean, we're talking an order of magnitude and the speed at which it happened was like unbelievable. And then it very quickly became one of the most powerful channels that we had on the entire internet for selling Macintoshes. Wow. And, um, so Apple was like, in many ways, the very first company to learn what so many companies later learned about Facebook and which grew Facebook into this massive company that is today, which is like, it's really effective at marketing. Yeah, in a way, Apple was um, really one of the first few companies to ever do a social media campaign. And in a lot of ways, we invented um, what is now known as uh, social media marketing. But in Facebook, Dave saw something that went beyond just a new channel through which to market computer products he saw a whole new way of designing and building applications. So if you think about an operating system, right? An operating system used to be just what your computer came with. It's the basic fundamental program upon which all your other applications are built. Mac had an operating system. Windows had an operating system. And computer developers built their programs specifically for these operating systems, like Microsoft Word and games that people played on their computers and Excel spreadsheets. All of those were built by developers specifically for these computer operating systems. But Dave thought, what if the operating system didn't come in the computer? What if it was on the internet? Then developers could build applications that people could just share more easily. You could make social applications. And he thought, what if we built that social operating system? What if we built it on Facebook? The idea felt big to Dave, if a little hard to describe. He spent some time trying to get Apple interested, but he couldn't. So Dave started talking about this idea with one of Facebook's founders, Dustin Moskowitz. We had our big developer conference at Apple where all the developers come in every summer. And I had invited Dustin down um, to come to that. And he just kept saying to me, you know, you should have come to Facebook two years ago. This idea is too good. Dustin at the time just said, you know, now you need to come. And I remember famously Steve gave that speech at Stanford, his famous commencement speech about and said something like, you know, if you wake up every day in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror and you're uh, not happy uh, for too many days in a row, then that means you need to change something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, and that happened. And so I, I, I literally saw that speech and it was like the next Monday I walked up to Steve and I said, I got to go. <laughs> I'm going to go to this Facebook place. What did Steve say when you told him that? You know, I remember him being disappointed, um, but he asked me if they'd taken care of me, um, you know, with stock. He asked me if I was sure. <laughs> and I said, yes sort of looked at me and said, 
okay, let me know if you need help. (laughs) And so that was when I left and went to Facebook. Coming up after the break, Dave goes to Facebook and gives the world Farmville, among many, many other things. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Silicon Valley insider Dave Morin. So Dave had just quit his dream job at Apple and was throwing all in with this new intriguing startup called Facebook. As we said at the top, he was employee number 29. And immediately after getting to Facebook, he dove into his big idea. They called it Facebook Platform. Basically, it allowed developers to create applications that tapped into Facebook users' social networks. So, for example, instead of a trivia game that you could play only by yourself on your computer, Facebook Platform would allow developers to build a trivia game that people could play with their friends on Facebook. We really went into this notion that we were going to re-architect Facebook from the inside out to be a operating system that you could build applications on top of. Um, we used to say that we were making the internet more social, where you could you know, be yourself, use your real name and real photo, and you could find your friends. Was it successful? So we launched it in May 2007, and um, really quickly, like within 24 hours, 48 hours, there were multiple apps that had a million users, <laughs> which was like the fastest that had ever happened on the internet. And this has kept happening um, to the point where we were helping people drive around the Bay Area with U-Haul trucks to get servers from startups that weren't succeeding so that they could have enough servers to handle the growth. It was just wild. If I remember the numbers correctly, we had about 24 million users at the launch of Facebook platform. And by the end of the following year, we had 100 million. And then by the end of the following year, it was like a quarter of a billion. And and who... What were some of the biggest apps that got made on on the platform? Game companies that came along, like uh, Slide and RockU and Zynga. Right. They created things like Farmville, ultimately. One of the earliest, most popular games was called Scrabulous. Uh-huh. It was a Scrabble game, which people kind of forget this, but all of the best turn-based games on the internet at the time were on Yahoo. And um, all of them came to Facebook and the the simple reason was that Yahoo had anonymous usernames and on Facebook you could see your friends who you know who was playing Scrabble and so you could play Scrabble with a friend. Right. It was a very basic thing but it was a it was it was a big change for people. So how how are you feeling at at this time? I mean, that time period was incredibly intense. Um my memory of it was working from you know whenever I woke up in the morning until midnight 1 2 in the morning. And at the time, I was actually living in the city and then driving up the 101 in the middle of the night, <laughs> going to sleep and then repeating that every day. 
you know, we went from being a small little 50 person company to being a thousand, 2000 people. Um, I mean, Facebook was growing eight to 10%, I think per week, you know, I used to tell my employees that every 10 weeks, the job you're doing will be two people's jobs. Um, because you, you, the, the, the system, the company will have grown a hundred percent. Um, so that means that whatever you're doing 10 weeks from now, you should be prepared to hire someone else, you know, like cellular division, right? Like splitting into two cells. Yeah. For me, it feels like 10 years worth of work in a, in a very short period of time, three, four years. Facebook had started as something pretty simple, a way for friends to connect with other friends online. But as more and more people joined and more apps got built, new uses for Facebook emerged. Businesses noticed the effectiveness, for example, of Apple's first social media campaign and started flocking to Facebook to market their own wares. News outlets discovered its magical ability to amplify their reach as articles got passed around instantly through this new feature called the Facebook Newsfeed. Facebook, in other words, had new stakeholders beyond just the users who created profiles and linked to friends. There were now businesses advertising on it, publishers depending on it, people creating apps to work on it. And because of all that, there was a new debate raging inside Facebook itself. In particular, there was a debate at the end of 2009 around um, whether or not the default for the system should be public or private. And up until 2009, what, what had been the default? Until this point, it had been private. Um, the default was friends only, and the network which you had joined, and that was defined by usually the college or the high school which you were attending at the time. Mm-hmm. But that year, we had launched this Pages product, which enabled celebrities and public figures and news organizations and whatnot to effectively publish in a public context on Facebook. Right. And um, there was a big intellectual debate that went on for most of 2009 around whether or not this default should change. And the debate basically went like this. One side argued that things should stay the same, that the promise of Facebook had always been, if you sign up, you can rest assured that your information will only get shared with friends and your network, usually your college or high school campus. The other side of the debate, though, wanted to try and make Facebook a more public forum, almost like Twitter. And they wanted to do this for a couple of reasons. One, if pages were public, they could show up in Google search and Facebook could reach more new users, which would help them grow faster. Also, it was easier to make money if you could sell the data to advertisers and app developers without dealing with so many of the privacy hurdles. And who, like, how did that debate manifest? Was it just like sort of like on, I don't know, Facebook Messenger over email? Like, how, how, no, no, I, no. I, it, verbally, like in meetings, you know, it was a, it was a, a. I mean, it went on for the most of the year. I guess the way that I looked at it, I wrote this essay that year, which I, um, I sadly don't have a copy of, called On Openness and Control. The nature of it was that openness only comes with control, meaning people need to feel like they have control over their context. I was worried and um, I was worried specifically that the the quality of the content would go down because people would be subconsciously more afraid to share things that were, in my view, valuable and, and vulnerable to creating deeper relationships with the people around them. That the content itself would change to be 
of a more homogenous, more mainstream, call it pop cultural nature, um, rather than the kind of more vulnerable, more nuanced, um, more daily feelings of the people around you. Mm -hmm. And so there was sort of one group on one side of that debate and then the one on the other side. I was on the privacy side. The privacy side lost the debate. And I felt that the, the social contract changed at that moment and that what we were doing um, as a company was, was different the next day. Coming up after the break, Dave tries to save the internet and the internet turns on Dave. Welcome back to Without Fail, my conversation with Dave Morin. Dave ultimately left his job at Facebook. The debate over privacy wasn't the only reason, of course. He'd been working nonstop for years. He'd accomplished a lot of what he wanted to accomplish. But he wasn't ready to give up on his dream of a social media company built around preserving users' privacy. So Dave met with a bunch of the Valley's leading investors, managed to recruit a couple of his super talented engineer friends to his cause, and launched his own company, a company that would be in many ways the social media network that he'd wanted Facebook to be. A social media network that would prioritize intimacy over exposure, privacy over publicity, and above all, keep your data and your personal details safe. He called the company he was starting Path. Because Facebook decided to leave behind um, the friends-only world, our general point of view is that there should be a company which focuses on not friends, but actually close friends and family. Mm -hmm. uh, And that that was a very different thing. My family in Montana... And my closest friends never used Facebook to communicate, actually. It was mostly people who were, one, you know, call it a degree out from that. And being from a small town and a close family, I, I felt like I wanted to work on small town, family, close friends stuff. And so we were really keen on this notion that you could give somebody a system where the privacy was so trustworthy and safe and structured such a way that they would be willing to put their entire path of their life on it. And that was, um, that was sort of, I guess, the, the context with which Path began. So you raised some money. Yep. Started this company. How, so how did it go in the beginning? I mean, was, what, what, did you have like initial success and, and what did that look like? I mean, we, we've spent about nine months building the first version. And uh, famously, before we launched, um, Google actually approached us and tried to buy the company. They were really keen on trying to destroy Facebook. I mean, like, really right. keen on it. They're talking about offering you, what was it, $100 million or something like that? Is that what I read? Yeah, like $100, $125 million. For um, a company that you have not even launched yet. Yeah, so this would have been a lot. Um, we were really passionate about what we were doing, and we didn't feel like it was a good idea to, to sell. One of my investors, Mike Volpe, mm-hmm. who I just think is one of the greatest humans in Silicon Valley. His point of view is we need to keep going. You know, we haven't even launched yet and this vision is so important. Nobody's fighting for privacy. Nobody's creating something like this. Like we have to keep going. Like we can't, we need to turn over another card, right? Um, Right. And so we we said no. It was a pretty painful process actually. Um, One of my investors uh, became extremely angry. How did that manifest. I was on the phone uh-huh. and um, he was very, very mad, um, screaming. And what did he say? You know, it was a, you're a kid, you don't understand. Um, this never happens. This is once in 10 years. 
you'll never do business in this town again. You know, you're not a real entrepreneur. You're a you're a fraud. You're a fake. Yada yada yada. It, it's like you you could write it straight out of a movie script or something. Like uh, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I, I know somebody act literally saying you'll never work in this town again. That's pretty. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like vividly remember it. I was like in my bedroom in my apartment in Russian Hill in San Francisco, and I was like kind of afraid for my career and my life. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I in my mind, I, I just kept thinking, well, I've got a pretty good network, <laughs> and <laughs> I helped build Facebook. I think that I can withstand this, um, but man, like. If this like person tries to run me out of town, that could be pretty bad. Um, it was a it was very scary moment. So you withstood that call. You go forward. Yeah, you know we launched I think a couple of weeks later to much fanfare in the New York Times and you know the whole thing. And mm-hmm. we went from zero users to about ten thousand users mm-hmm. um, in the first few months. And then we stayed there for probably a year. And oh, wow. 10,000 users is not a lot of users. That's like, <laughs> you know, half the population of my hometown. <laughs> so we went through a year after that of being like, oh gosh, what did we do? And nothing, and, and your user base was not growing at all. No. I remember just looking at the spreadsheet every day and being like, it's not growing. It's not growing. What do we do? So Path did what a lot of early startups do. They talked to their users to see what was working and what wasn't. At the time, Path allowed you to share photos only. And Dave and his team noticed that the users were doing something. They were sharing other things in the form of photos. In other words, they were sharing screenshots of stuff. They were sharing screenshots of the route that they'd taken on their run. They were sharing screenshots of notes that they'd taken down in the Notes app on their phone. So Path redesigned the app to let users share more stuff than just photos. Stuff like music playlists or location information. And it worked. Those 10,000 users grew very quickly into half a million. We call it Path 2. And, um, you know, our our valuation went from, uh, I think the Series A valuation was around 20 million, 25 million, um, to around... uh, 250 million, I think, was the Series B valuation. Whoa. So you yeah. pr- so like at that point you're like, all right, this was the right decision. Turning down Google was yes. the right decision. We we definitely felt like we'd we'd proved the haters wrong, you know, to some extent. Uh, uh-huh. but I don't think that um you, you know, uh I, I, I do also remember sort of in the back of my mind going, you know, we got to keep going. Like we've got, we've got a lot of work to do. And, you know, right. though we've done well, we've got, we need to be 10 times larger than this. And that's because Dave was now committed to Path getting huge. His investors had valued the company at $250 million and they were betting on it growing to 10 or 20 times that size. In other words, they were betting on a Facebook kind of trajectory. But Dave was betting that he could grow that big while still delivering privacy to his users. Growth versus privacy, that had been a major conflict at Facebook. And in pushing for growth, Dave stumbled into that conflict at Path as well. In 2012, a year and a half after Path had launched, a security researcher, Arun Tumpy, wrote a post titled, 
Path uploads your entire iPhone address book to its servers, arguing that Path was taking private data off of users' phones without asking. What Arun was referring to was this technical way Path was uploading its users' contacts. Path was trying to make that upload happen faster. Dave just agreed that the way they were doing it compromised privacy. He says Tumby was looking at code that they designed to make things happen more efficiently and reading sinister intent into it. It wasn't nefarious. It wasn't, you know, we weren't, we, had, we didn't have bad intent. We were storing everything encrypted. We were throwing away the contacts after we found your friends. Like the way we were doing it, I felt was high integrity. Still, Path was a company that had explicitly told its users, we're the antidote to Facebook. We keep your data private. And this blog post, it happened in 2012. We were three years into the Great Recession. Trusted institutions like the world's largest banks had been revealed to be houses of cards. And people were much less willing to give the benefit of the doubt to rich people who intentionally or not broke promises. Because of that, there was like major outpour. Um, FTC, you know, sued us. We, had, we ended up with a consent decree. Um, a lot of very negative press. And I, I had to do the sort of mea culpa um, you know, apology blog post and interview in the New York Times. And after that happened, Path became sort of a um, pariah in Silicon Valley. Like we were, you know, we were just like every other social network. We were, you know, trying to take your data and sell it, et cetera, which was really counter to everything that we were trying to do. I mean, we had intentionally from day one said, we will never have ads. We will never sell your data. We will always use encryption. It will always be private. Um, you know, we were literally trying to stand for what we believed everybody actually wanted long-term. And, and so I think I felt like a failure. It, it also just strikes me though, that like you're, it's literally the thing that you were starting the company to do is to keep things private. And because of like essentially mistakes, People are accusing you of doing the thing that you were, that is in many ways the opposite of what you were trying to do and actually were wanting to do. Yeah. Even hearing you explain it, I, my heart hurts. Meanwhile, of course, Facebook, remember, was making the opposite bet from Dave, and it seemed to be working for them. When Dave left Facebook, they'd had around 350 million active users. By 2012, that number had nearly tripled, was over a billion. And while Dave was on a public apology tour for the PATH security breach, Facebook was on a big press tour announcing its acquisition of Instagram. Still, the world's a big place, and there were bright spots on the map for Dave and PATH. The one area of the world where we had a consistent growth curve was in Southeast Asia. And um, Southeast Asia at the time, and I think still to this day, is considered to be one of the most important next markets. And... I had actually played risk against Mark regularly <laughs> um, during the uh, Facebook years. Against and I had Mark this Zuckerberg. thought in my mind, yeah, I had <sighs> this thought in my mind that I needed a country and a big one. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I wasn't going to be able to maintain. You know, if we could get one country growing exponentially, um, then we could leverage that to jump to another country and try to accelerate the growth there and dominate that market. The country that Dave picked to start with was Indonesia. Indonesia is the same size as the United States and uh, democracy. And uh, we had dominant market share in, in sort of modern Indonesian society. So we were able to maintain that um, position at that moment in time. Uh, and then Facebook bought WhatsApp. <laughs> 
WhatsApp, of course, was the wildly popular messaging app that it launched in 2009. When Mark Zuckerberg announced the deal in 2014, he noted that WhatsApp was a clear leader in many regions of the world, Europe, Latin America, and yes, Asia. It had over 450 million users and was adding a million new users each day. Now, perhaps Dave still could have managed to hold Indonesia, come back from the brink of defeat in the real-life game of risk he was playing against Mark Zuckerberg, if not for something else going on in his life. Something seemingly tiny and insignificant. It was this one throwaway sidebar article in Vanity Fair magazine, a feature they sometimes did called My Phone, the preferred apps, ringtones, backgrounds, and hot downloads of the technology elite. This is one of those little features, one pager in the magazine. It's got a picture of somebody and then a bunch of answers to basic questions. Dave was that issue's member of the technology elite. The basic Q&A went on a tour through his phone. What was his most recent text? What was the last app he used? What was his background screen photo? Remaining battery life. And then, of course, it had Dave's answers to those questions. They seemed straightforward. The recent text, it was something to his co-founder about product design. The last app he used, it was Uber to get to work. But he also mentioned he had two phones, one for day and one for night. There were some unlucky poll quotes regarding his background photo. He's quoted as saying, the mountains are my soul. And there's an inadvertently douchebaggy looking headshot. All of this ran headlong into the world's collective fatigue with the technology elite. And Dave Morin's profile became one of those moments when everyone was like, you know what? I hate these guys. For whatever reason, uh, you know, similar to like what happens today on the internet, but a way bigger scale, it caused this like mimetic reaction um, in the valley. And I was being attacked like every single day. I, I would wake up every day and look at Twitter, my replies on Twitter, and it would people would be like, you're the worst thing that ever happened to Silicon Valley. You're worthless. You're, you know, you should go home to Montana. Like, you're a douchebag. You're everything that's wrong with the Valley. And I mean, this went on for like a year. Um, and uh, it was really quite difficult. The reason I bring this all up is because it all came to a head around the time that this, we're going to have to sell the company probably conversation started. You know, I think up until that point, I had been res resisting or denying the fact that we were going to have to sell the company. But I was starting to get depressed. And I think the stress of the company was 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 part of it. But certainly this sort of incessant just attacks based on that article, it, it just like got to a sort of, I guess, breaking point. And I have this distinct memory of walking out of my office one day and um, standing on the corner and this bus going by and um, the neuron went off in my head to jump in front of the bus. And I was like, okay, this is the end. We, we have to, you know, figure out what to do. Dave started getting help and he also ended up finding a buyer for PATH a Korean company called Daum Kakao that ultimately offered a fraction of what Google had bid on the company before it had even launched. Dave had no choice but to accept. And let's pause to consider all the ironies here. Dave had started Path to create a more private alternative to Facebook, only to derail the company with an embarrassing data security flaw. And the company that dealt Path its final blow was Facebook, whose growth and power Dave had helped facilitate by building one of its foundational features, Facebook Platform. And perhaps the greatest irony of all, the internet, that idea that held so much promise to Dave in the beginning, 
making the world a more open and connected and tolerant place, had become the vehicle for his public shaming. And going through his own experience of depression, seeing how closely it was linked to this thing he'd helped create, social media and the connected world, Dave started to see parallels between what he'd gone through and what was happening more broadly. He wasn't the only person who'd wanted to kill himself because of the internet. The stats are shocking, and by this point, familiar. Depression rates among adolescents and young adults have increased by more than 50%. Researchers have found that millennials and the iGen have experienced a steady rise in mood disorder and suicide. And studies have found that Facebook use correlates with worsening mental health. To Dave, it's hard to imagine putting this genie back in the bottle. The only hope is to better equip our brains to deal with it. And so Dave has been taking his Silicon Valley ethos to a new project, Hacking the Brain, trying to understand why we get depressed and whether or not we can fortify ourselves in the face of this new reality we're all living with, the new reality he helped create. How do you make sense of it all now? Like what, you know, when you think now about like the promise that you felt in the beginning and sort of like the, but the, and then the path that you've been on throughout all of it, sort of building this thing, having this philosophical break, starting a company that's like sort of like built on sort of like a different set of values and then having that company not not succeed, not entirely, certainly because of Facebook, but in some part because of Facebook. And and Facebook is in some ways a proxy even. Sure. I think of Facebook as almost a proxy for the promise of Silicon Valley that feels so yes. faded now. Yes. I think we're all feeling that hangover a little bit. No question. And to what to, to the person who's inside of it, like... How are you experiencing that hangover differently? Is it stronger? Is it weaker? Oh, it's certainly uh, stronger. There's not a day that goes by that I don't feel responsibility. Um, I now look at all of this with a heavy head to some extent because um, the level of suffering and gravity that the internet is putting on people's brain health is extremely large um, and very heavy. Um, if all of the moments that you used to ride around on the subway in New York City and, uh, you know, get to take a breath and think to yourself for a minute and look at all the people on the subway with you are now filled with playing Angry Birds or looking at your Facebook feed, your brain no longer has a, any time to think. And their attention is also taken by things like being hated on and being jealous and fear of missing out and, you know, um, kind of all of the worst human tendencies. And so people are really depressed. Back in like, whatever, the early days of Web 2.0, did you have any inkling that the thing you were building would have this kind of profound effect on our brains and our feelings and our psyches? No. I literally do not remember having a single conversation about that. I, there were other worries that we had. We were actually much more focused on social constructs and, you know, democracy and, right. you know, a lot of social. But the brain, no. We didn't think that it was going to be what it has become. Um, and maybe that's just kids that are naive of how powerful incentives are. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard because I I know this too. Like sometimes, you know, I'm, I now realize like sort of more of an entrepreneurial minded person than like, you have to be a little bit weird to sort of like do the thing in the first place. Like to be like, I'm going to do this thing that doesn't exist and like 
you know, make it happen. And then when people are like, I don't know, that could end wrong. I'm always like, oh, shut up, you Debbie Downer. Like, you don't, you don't believe. Yep. You, you yep. know, she, the, oh, if, if, if it was people like you, nothing would ever get done, you know? And yep. like, I have this really dismissive attitude. And like, yeah. I don't know how you make that balance though. I don't know if you can both prepare for the great future and also the possible negative consequences that might come from that great future that you're building. I do think you can be uh, less dismissive of it the more mature you get. And I don't think having had the opportunity to work with some great innovators like Steve Jobs, I don't think you have to become cynical like and um, stop innovating or mm-hmm. always listen to the critics or the people who are afraid to move into the future. Right. And, uh, you know, I feel actually very lucky to have been able to see a world scale change like this and to have gotten to have somewhat been in the cockpit because having that context makes it um, easier to think about what those things might be because you, you've seen it before what the negative consequences might be. Yeah, you might not, you're not just speculating. It's like, well, no, I've, I've seen it play out. I've seen what happens when you don't set this value right or do this thing right, you know? You've seen what happens if you don't intentionally add some humility to, to, your, to, to the necessary hubris. <laughs> yes, yeah. Dave Morin's newest venture is called Sunrise. It's a project focused on trying to find a cure for depression. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick and Rob Zipko. It's edited by me and Devin Taylor. We had editing help this week from Caitlin Kenny. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, make sure you're subscribed. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>